Welcome to the Good Shepherd New York podcast. Good Shepherd New York is a community helping New Yorkers embody the love of Christ for the good of our neighbors. For more information, go to goodshepherdnewyork.com. May you be filled with curiosity, grace, and peace as we listen and learn together through this sacred text. Today's reading is from Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 38. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. As a child growing up, I had many experiences with the symbol of the cross. One of my earliest memories of a cross took place when I went with my father to visit the grave of his father. Now, I was quite young. I couldn't make sense of most of the experience, but two things were etched in my memory on that day. The tears that were streaming down on my dad's face under his sunglasses, and all of the crosses on the gravestones and the statues. Later, I'd take note of the cross on a staff that the priest at my local Catholic church held during the procession. Or later, I noticed a cross etched in the wooden pulpit of the little Southern Baptist church that my family attended. The cross was definitely a religious symbol for me growing up, but it was clearly more than that. It was also a pop cultural icon. It was ripped out of its more coherent settings like churches and tombstones, and it was jammed right in the middle of MTV music videos. I remember Madonna wearing a cross necklace in the 80s and trying to make sense of that connection. In the 90s, I'd hear a young emerging artist, Alanis Morissette, perform her song, You Oughta Know, on The Letterman Show at one point, screaming, quote, it's not fair to deny me of the cross I bear that you gave to me you ought to know. Now, in the time of Jesus, the cross was not religious imagery or pop cultural fashion statements or even a metaphor for personal anguish. It was a dreaded symbol of the Roman Empire, a literal threat of state execution. It was a public warning of the political cost that waited anyone who resisted or opposed. Now, In the face of this occupying empire, many would-be heroes emerged in Jesus' time. Political figures who positioned themselves as deliverers, those who would resist Roman power the only way that made sense, with violence. They would ask disciples to take up the sword and heroically revolt. 
They were sometimes called messiahs. And they drew on a series of biblical texts that painted a picture of a political and military strength. In the popular imagination, the hero was the one who was brave enough to resist, to give Rome a taste of their own medicine. And if they were the Messiah, they would have God's anointing or support in their efforts of resistance. Now our gospel story today, it contains a teaching that shook the imaginations of Jesus' disciples to their core. They found that their picture of a hero was completely deconstructed. Jesus was sucking the wind out of their vision of how resistance to Rome should play out. In Mark's story, there are these three distinct calls to discipleship, and this story today contains the second. The disciples are challenged, they're reoriented, and they're called afresh to follow Christ. Now, Lent is about hearing the call to follow Jesus afresh. That's what this season's about. Life is like that too. We're constantly evolving in our understanding and our experience of what it means to follow Jesus in our world. Our sense of hero is deconstructed. Our vision for the way life should play out is undercut and reoriented by the gospel. And so on the second Sunday of Lent, we're asked to freshly consider what it means to follow Jesus. Now, this part of the story is also a gigantic pivot, right? We move away from the first half of the story to the second half. Here, Jesus will make explicit what has been hidden, and a fork in the road sort of emerges. Jesus has asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they reply in mirror form to an earlier report in Mark. Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others the prophets. Then the question turns and it becomes personal. It reaches through the story to the reader, people like you and I. And the question comes and says, who do you say that I am? You see, it's here that Peter replies as a representative of the disciples. And he says, you're the Messiah. Now at this, Jesus warns them. He warns them not to export what he realizes they don't really understand. He warns them not to tell anyone about him. Now, as our story picks up, Jesus begins to revise their understanding of the Messiah, their instincts when it comes to a hero. He then, quote, began to teach them that the human one must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, end quote. Okay, so what's going on here? Jesus is shifting the language intentionally away from Peter's confession of Messiah to a counter-confession. Jesus identifies as what some translations call the Son of Man, but what is probably better translated, the human one. It's a phrase that comes from the prophet Daniel in one of his wild visions. Jesus is introducing himself in apocalyptic terms, which isn't to say he's talking about the end of history or zombies. Apocalypse means an unveiling, and it's a vivid way of speaking and writing that reorients the public imagination, often challenging them, especially the suffering, to turn their visions and their values upside down in light of some new insight or some new revelation. And that's how Mark is framing Jesus' words here. 
Jesus' words to his disciples and to us are apocalyptic. Now, there are three clues in the text that signal this apocalyptic background. Um, of this, in, uh, the first is his mention of suffering as necessary. Right? This isn't an expression of fatalism. Uh, the theological force of it is to strengthen the faithful in times of frightful suffering. Whenever you're scared and you face a challenge, right? this is the way the word necessar- necessary is used in Mark 13, and it's the way the word is used in the book of Revelation as well. It's not about an odd predetermination, but rather it's the language of inevitability. Jesus is showing us that if we will follow him on the path of resistance, suffering will happen. The second clue that this is an apocalyptic backdrop is Jesus drops the Messiah language and he picks up Daniel's phrase, the human one. Now, in Daniel's case, he brings a political critique. The prophet sees oppressive rulers who appear to be prevailing in the historical moment. But then the prophet looks more deeply, and in the language of the text, quote, as I looked again, end quote, he says something else taking, he sees something else taking place. The human one establishing justice, right? The apparent triumph of the beasts over the saints is subverted by assessing an entirely contradictory interpretation. So Jesus is drawing on this language as a way to unveil something himself, right? To turn his own situation and that of his would-be followers upside down. Finally, Jesus predicts his rejection and his execution at the hands of a new political coalition. There are new opponents introduced in this story, the elders and the high priests, and they're paired with established opponents like uh, the scribes. And they're basically combined to describe the Jerusalem authority structure the people that will end up engineering his murder. Now, each of these are cues that a story war has emerged, or in the word of Chad Myers, the war of myths. This is the road of Lent as well. It begins in the desert as Jesus is tempted by opposing voices, and it continues in the story as he experiences religious and political manifestations of those opposing voices. The road of Lent invites us to join Jesus on the way to Jerusalem, right, to initiate the war of myths in our own lives. The disciples thought of Messiah as necessarily meaning a royal triumph and the restoration of Israel's honor. Jesus counters that with a new necessity, a new story, the necessity of the human one to suffer. In that moment, Peter's fantasies are dashed by a clear-eyed reality. And so it is with us, If we do the work of Lent well, we find our fantasies censured by the gospel of Christ, and we're asked to consider what of our vision of Christ or God or life is fantasy and what is fidelity. In Endo's 1966 novel, Silence, we see a young Portuguese Jesuit priest, Sebastião Rodriguez, traveling to Japan to assist the local church there and to investigate reports that his mentor, a priest named uh, Ferreira, has committed apostasy. Rodriguez discovers that the local Christian population has been driven underground. The way that security officials find these hidden Christians is uh, to take the suspected Christians, have them trample on a carved image of Christ. Those who refuse are imprisoned and killed by being hung upside down over a pit and slowly bled. When Rodriguez is eventually captured, along with his companion, he begins to realize that there's no glory in martyrdom, 
only brutality and cruelty. Authorities were trying to get priests to renounce their faith by torturing them. Those practices eventually change, and then a new strategy emerge, emerges. They force priests to look on as other Christians are tortured. The priests are told if they renounce their faith, they will end the suffering of their flock. Now, Rodriguez, up to this point, has had an image of Christ that's noble, that's serene, that's strong. It's almost otherworldly and heroic. His Christ is full of the qualities that he aspires toward. And yet, Rodriguez's prayer is one-way communication. His Christ is silent. At the climactic moment of the story, Rodriguez hears the moans of those who have already recanted but continue to be tortured until he tramples the image of Christ. As the image is brought to his cell, he's told to trample the image. And it's here that Rodriguez realizes that the Christ image is quite different from his own. This Christ is dirty, it's distorted, it's chipped, it's, un, uh, it, it, it's unseemly. The heroic Christ of his childhood and seminary training remains silent as he cries out in prayer. He's convinced that he must not trample this image, and he's in agony. But suddenly, the silence of God is broken, and a voice from the image says, Trample, Rodriguez, trample. It is for this I have come. See, he discovers in this moment that the Christ he grew up with is silent and that the God he knows has no voice. It isn't until he's plagued with doubt and uncertainty that God speaks, and God's words are shocking. See, Peter and the disciples are here equally shocked. We see a triple rebuke play out. Peter announces that Jesus is Messiah. Jesus silences Peter. Right? Jesus then announces he's the human one who must suffer, and Peter silences Jesus. Then Jesus silences Peter once again, and then Jesus announces that Peter is Satan. See, Peter made a dramatic confession, celebrated in the other gospel stories, but here it's muted, literally, with Jesus telling him to remain quiet about it. This exchange shows us, like Jesus tempted in the desert, that there is a contest taking place, and it's raging over what a Messiah or a hero really is, a war that rages on even today. Jesus tells Peter his problem is that he's seeing it all wrong. He says that his concerns or his commitments are merely human and that they're out of touch with the divine. Jesus, with his teaching, will begin to unravel the all-too-familiar human concerns over which we all become obsessed. Concerns to survive, to protect and defend, concerns of winning, concerns of being safe no matter what the cost. This could look like Peter denying that he knows Jesus when questioned later in the story, or the rich man walking away sad because Jesus' invitation seemed like it was too much. Or it can look like Judas handing over his friend and rabbi to the Jerusalem leaders for 30 pieces of silver. Everyone, it seems, has their price. Everyone, it seems, is overcome by human concerns. But Jesus reorients us. Jesus speaks openly and inclusively, this time pulling together the other disciples and the crowds. His public call to reorient by following him has three parts. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. 
See, this turn of phrase shouldn't be privatized or spiritualized like we've done over the years. It had no other meaning except as an invitation to share the consequences facing those who dared to challenge the ultimate power of imperial Rome. It was also a symbol of shame for the convicted. Mark's readers would not have missed this terrible implication. Self-denial is said to come first, but this isn't self-denial of the bourgeois interpretation, right? denial that's merely personal and giving up something. The meaning is drawn from the courtroom, where one bears witness to affirm or deny with dire consequences to follow. To further illustrate the political meaning of dying to oneself, Jesus offers, or denying oneself, Jesus offers an apparent paradox in verse 35. He says, to save one's life is to destroy it. This isn't a phrase that uh, doesn't appear again until he talks about uh, political trials of Christians. Now what's interesting is that this language of self-denial was used by Hellenistic military officers on speeches on the eve of battles, right? They would use it to sort of comfort the faltering spirits of anxious soldiers. But Mark isn't goading his disciples to military heroism here. He's introducing the central paradox of the gospel. The threat of death is the bottom line power of the state. This fear keeps the dominant order intact. But resisting this fear and pursuing Jesus' way of life, even at the cost of death, the disciple contributes to shattering the reign of death in history. If you refuse the state's sovereignty in death, you refuse its authority in life. But what's the point? Jesus has revealed that his messiahship, his heroism, means political confrontation with, not reform, of the imperial state. Right? He's not trying to just tweak things. He's trying to completely undermine it. And those who wish to follow after him will have to identify themselves with that subversive program. The risk described by the disciple will face the test of loyalty. They'll be questioned by state authorities. And this is terrifying stuff. But this is the power of apocalyptic language, right? Jesus uses that reversal of courtroom to engage his disciples. What seems absurd from human perspectives is the wisdom and the triumph of God. Right? The judgment of the human one is pitted against the judgment of earthly powers and leaders who enforce them. Jesus tells them, this generation will see the kingdom of God come in power. But the power isn't a military triumph or a nod at his return. It's the very power of the cross. See, the cross reveals the fear of death does not control Christ and need not control us. It also reveals that the way to overcome the violent threat of death isn't by returning violence in kind. It's by the power of nonviolent resistance. Our heroes are violent. We believe in the myth of redemptive violence. But Christ rebukes us with words and example, asking us to follow not our instincts, which are shaped by our cultural stories and our heroic tales, but by what he unveils with his own life and death. The cross has often been a symbol used by the powerful to create a passivity among those who are persecuted. During the transatlantic slave trade and during Jim Crow in America, people with power interpreted resistance to authority as denial of the cross. The cross means 
we should passively accept whatever suffering comes our way, they would say. But Jesus' story, it doesn't signal this at all. The cross isn't an invitation of passivity for those who suffer under injustice, right, to comply and accept their lot in life. It's Jesus' way of saying, I'd rather die than continue to passively suffer under this injustice. The cross is a way of uh, resistance and truth-telling, but it's done without violence. Now, how do we take up this invitation of this story, especially if we don't find ourselves actively persecuted by state authorities for pursuing justice or for speaking the truth? Well, in the words of James Cone, we must, quote, join the resistance by making solidarity with those who struggle for life in the face of death. This isn't a call to action that you can just sort of check off of a list and then be on with the rest of your life. It's an invitation into a way of being, a way of resisting corruption and injustice that harms the children of God, speaking truth as best as you understand it, even when it costs you, using your power to protect the weak and suffering, or perhaps laying down a power that has overreached. May God give us wisdom during this Lenten season to know where our imagination needs to be shaken, where our places of suffering need to be encouraged and perhaps turned upside down with a new court of appeal and vision, where our sense of self-preservation needs to be renounced so that the shalom of God, the peace of God that Jesus cast vision for can grow up in our world. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Good Shepherd New York podcast. Good Shepherd New York is an interdenominational church centered around the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. Our church is theologically rooted in the apostles and Nicene creeds, but we welcome people of any or no religious backgrounds to participate in our community. If you would like to support us, please text Good Shepherd NY, all lowercase with no spaces, to 77977. That's Good Shepherd NY to 77977. Or visit our website, goodshepherdnewyork.com. Thank you for listening.